Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Marty Chen, who's the moderator for our next panel, Women's Empowerment from Home to Factory and Beyond. Marty Chen is a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and co-founder, Emeritus International Coordinator and Senior Advisor of the Global Network Women in Informal Employment, Global Globalizing and Organizing, known as WIGO. An experienced development practitioner and scholar, her areas of specialization are employment, gender, and poverty, focusing on the working poor in the informal economy. Before joining Harvard in 1987, she had two decades of resident work experience in Bangladesh and in India. Dr. Chen co-founded and for 20 years led the WIGO Network, which is well known worldwide for its work to improve the status of the working poor in the informal economy through stronger organizations, improved statistics and research, and a more favorable policy environment. Dr. Chen received a PhD in South Asia Regional Studies from the University of Pennsylvania. She was awarded a high civilian award, the Padma Shri, by the government of India in April 2011, and a Friends of Bangladesh Liberation War Award by the government of Bangladesh in December 2012. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, and thanks again to the Middle South Asia Institute for hosting this conference. Welcome back uh, to those who attended the first half day of the conference yesterday. And welcome to those who are joining today. If you missed some of the panels, the conference is being recorded and there is a link um, already on YouTube for the recordings. Today, the three panels are on women's empowerment, the role of civil society in Bangladesh's development, and the future of Bangladesh. From 1975 to 1980, I worked at BRAC, the very large NGO from Bangladesh. It was small at the time, and I worked in the women's program. My life and career were shaped by the inspiration knowledge I gained working with village women in Bangladesh. Those were the early days of women's empowerment and much has happened since. Both practice and thinking on women's empowerment have evolved significantly, not only in Bangladesh, but around the world. So it is a distinct pleasure and privilege to introduce the speakers on women's empowerment today. Four pioneering champion, champions for women's rights and human rights more generally. Hamida Hussain started her career in publishing as an editor with the Oxford University Press. She was an editor of Forum, a political weekly banned by the Pakistan army in 1971. She obtained a PhD in modern history from Oxford University for her thesis, Company Weavers of Bengal, Textile Production for the East India Company, 1750 to 1830. As a freelance writer, her articles in defense of human rights, women's rights, workers' rights in Bangladesh have been published widely. And she has engaged actively with women's rights and human rights movements in South Asia. Kushi Kabir began working on citizens' rights immediately after the liberation of Bangladesh in 1972. In 1980, she joined Nijira Kori, a national NGO known for creating strong autonomous organizations of the rural poor to assert their rights 
and ensure their entitlements as citizens. And she remains passionately involved in promoting women's equality, rights of marginalized communities, environmental justice, food sovereignty, democratic practices, and accountability. Nyla Kabir is a joint professor of gender and international development in the departments of international development and gender studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She has extensive experience in research, teaching and training concerning gender, poverty, labor markets, livelihoods, social protection and collective action. She has published many books and articles and advised many bilateral and multilateral organizations. Shireen Purveen Huck is a women's rights activist working on gender, human rights and development. She is a founding member of Nari Poco, where she has worked since its founding in 1983. She is also a founding member of the Committee for the Protection of Fundamental Rights, a platform of human rights defenders in Bangladesh, and is a co-convener of the Bangladesh Civil Society Platform on Justice for the Rohingyas. Most recently, she has been involved with the founding of Feminists Across Generations, an intergenerational alliance to combat gender-based violence. So I can't imagine a better set of speakers on the topic. And the overarching questions that the four speakers will address are, in what domains or aspects of their lives have Bangladeshi women of different classes experienced change, positive or negative? What factors have contributed to this change? And what are the future frontiers, challenges and opportunities for the empowerment of Bangladeshi women of different classes? The flow of the panel is as follows. We'll start with um, initial reflections from each of the speakers for about 20 minutes total. Then we'll have a sort of roundtable discussion with uh, some additional questions from my side for the speakers. And then we'll turn to the questions from the audience. So please do put in your questions in the Q&A function. And then we'll have a round of closing remarks by the speakers. So let us start with Hamida. Thank you, Marty. And I should thank the Mital Institute for sponsoring this subject. I know that 50 years of Bangladesh has caught everybody's fancy, but very few centers have talked about women, as usual. Um, so, um, so thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, we are now meeting about five days before the International Women's Day, so I hope we have something positive to say. Though I must admit that I haven't followed your brief very strictly. I just kept saying whatever I wanted to say. I hope it fits into the larger pattern that you have suggested. Uh, let me first briefly mention how women's lives may have changed in the last 50 years. It is a mixed bag of positive initiatives and negative outcomes. Women may have moved forward some steps in political participation and economic opportunities but have they gained freedom and justice? I would then like to talk about how women strategized against discrimination and even to resist violence. This has happened in both their public and private lives. In the last 50 years, women have emerged from the invisibility 
to feature in Bangladesh's development discourse. Official reports acknowledge them as drivers of the economy and as peacekeepers. Posters of a woman garment worker or another in a uniform tell us of women's contribution to the family economy and their entry into the market. To some extent, national policies have followed international plans to encourage women's education. But in recording successes in women's development, we must recognize their limitations. First, there is a wide disparity between women of different communities owing to their class, their ethnicity, their location, and their religion. While gender may be a common mark of discrimination, we have to take account of the disparities in economic, political, and social relations between different communities of women and between women and men of the same community. Let me just give you a few examples which we can discuss in more detail later, I suppose. Um, official statistics show an increase in girls' education or advances in maternal health. But even if education in, has increased in terms of numbers, we need to look at what the content of that education is. Because a few years ago, I remember that there were some uh, stories or articles by women writers which had quickly been removed from a grade reader in one of the primary schools and, and removed by in the government schools. So I hope it's, they've been put back again because otherwise one would question what sort of education women would be getting or the young girls would be. But women's access to facilities is more so in urban areas, which leads to lower education standards in rural areas. While investment opportunities have expanded for women, for women entrepreneurs, and they are now having access to various bank uh, credit facilities, and with some of them even receiving awards in Dhaka, women of the Moro community in the Chittagong Hill Tracks are losing their land in favor of commercial or tourist projects, which is going to be owned by other capitalist owners. In contrast to this, let us look at women's strategies. Because the women's struggle for change has had a long history. We can go back from long before independence, in fact, how they were struggling for their uh, facilities or for their rights, even under the colonial system. But then beginning in the 50s, that is even before Bangladesh came into being, women's demands for equality in the family called for reform of personal rights through a uniform family code. Although this was not acceptable to the minority communities because they thought that they would be deprived of what little rights they had, or they would be deprived or disoriented from their religion, then these communities pushed for reform laws within each community. But even so, this has yet to take place and there have been no discussion in the state sector or outside to see how these laws can be changed and to see how women would have equal rights under these laws. At the workplace, women have demanded equal wages and safe conditions, but industrial accidents have left workers without work and without compensation. Promises of compensation and insurance schemes have yet to be met. I think we all know what has happened to Tazreen and Rana Plaza 
where over 2,000 workers were affected, where many died, over 1,100 died in Rana Plaza, over 200 died in Tazreen, and their families were left without compensation. And the workers who remain injured are continue to feel the need for um, help, for a support system to enable them to survive. But this has not been done yet. And I think this is an area which we need to look at because we can't constantly be drawing upon the work and contribution of the, or the labor, even the cheap labor of women's workers and not do anything in compensation. In the villages, traditions and customary practices uh, have made women vulnerable to oppression with the, within the community. And they have permitted village elders or religious leaders to dictate a moral code that subordinates women to not only within their own family, but to village elders or to the local religious leaders. It's interesting that women's movements have used the legal strategies to assert their rights under the constitution. They have said that they would not, particularly since the constitution itself talks about secularism in its preamble, it, it seems sensible for women to argue that we would want our rights under the constitution. Let me give you a few examples. The basic principles of the constitution were democracy, nationalism, socialism, and secularism. And the women very early on were part of the nationalist struggle. And as part of the national struggle, they also claimed their own rights. And under these rights, particularly of secularism, they expected equality and justice. But in, uh, in many villages in Nadej, particularly the more remote villages, there is a practice or there has been a practice of fatwa or religious edicts, which has prevailed in conservative villages particularly. Here, we find that village women have been forced to accept these codes, which sometimes result in violence and many times result in uh, subordination and exclusion. In 1993, as an example, for the first time, a report appeared in a local newspaper that a woman had been penalized by a fatwa given by an imam. Noor Jahan was living in Morbi Bazar near Silet. She was made to commit suicide by what the imam and his followers pressed upon her. This media report caught the eyes of a woman activist who, on behalf of a party, filed a case. Several women's groups then got together and pursued the criminal and civil charges up to the Supreme Court. Finally, in 2014, the Supreme Court gave a ruling that fatwas giving penalties were illegal. You must realize that it took over 20 years to get this judgment, whereas in the meantime, uh, women continue to be subject to such measures. But once uh, this uh, constitution ruling was dictated by the court. Uh, women were free then to use this judgment to see that such fatwas were not given. Uh, during this period, I may send, uh, mention uh, that there was a rash of fatwas in other villages as well. Uh, even, uh, obviously, not, uh, not after the Supreme Court ruling, but between 1993 and 2014. And um, during this period, because um, we had been activated by the death of Nur Jahan, every time there was a fatwa in some village, 
uh, women lawyers then would pursue these cases while other ca activists campaigned in public to raise awareness. And the collective awareness led to collective action. This judgment has been used by women in different places now to resist the power of the imams or the village elders. It has helped them to appeal to the police, to complain to the police whenever they feel that there is an attempt by a village elder or an imam to take action against women and to oppress her. In another incident of sexual harassment by a group of students whose impunity came from their belonging to the ruling party, women students took up the challenge and filed a writ petition in the High Court. The court issued guidelines for both educational institutions and workplaces to set up an anti-harassment committees in their place. Whether these work effectively remains to be seen. Whether in fact they've been set up in all places, we don't know yet. But I think this is an opportunity for us to use the court judgment and to see that whatever laws and judgments there are, we should try and see, monitor, if we can uh, see, use this as a framework for action against the perpetrators. Hamida, we, time is nearly, nearly up. Yeah. Okay, I'm just finished. In contesting violence or subordination, women's groups have worked together along with legal aid groups and human rights defenders to sustain campaigns for one, creating a collective consciousness or awareness of rights under the constitution. And this has been done not only in urban areas, but in many other villages as well. Second, challenging dictates from village elders which violate these rights. Three, setting up support systems for legal defense and for enforcement of rights. We now, of course, have a fourth generation of women activists and even feminists, the ones that uh, Shirin will be talking about, but there are also others. And we will then see what are their uh, demands and what are their pre preferences and how they intend to work towards implementing and enforcing their rights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hamida. That provides a wonderful historic overview and some of the legal and collective action strategies. Thanks so much. Next, Pushy. Thank you, and uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I'll, I think I'll leave out all the statistics and the changes that have happened over the 50 years since we've been Bangladesh, we've been an independent country because we have Naila also on the panel. And I can just say that since my work immediately after liberation <clears throat> and going off into the villages to work and still working with rural women and with urban women too, I see a lot of differences and, and changes, changes that are positive, but I'm also seeing changes that um, we could do without. The changes that are positive, the first thing that hits me is that uh, the life expectancy of the average Bangladeshi citizen, whereas it used to be around 53 or four years around at the time of the Liberation War, after we got you know, independent, it's now 71 point something. And before, it used to be like women were lived three years less than men, 
average. And now women live, outlive men three or, by three or four years. So this shows the trend that there has been quite a lot of you know, changes in terms of providing the kind of healthcare services, et cetera, which has ensured people could live the life as they're supposed to be living. It has also, we have also seen that um, maternal mortality rates have gone down, et cetera. From a very personal point of view, what I've seen is in the early 70s and even up till uh, the late 70s, going into the beginning of the 80s, uh, there used to be a, the really poor in the village would either have one cooked meal a day and sometimes they would have to forage for, uh, uh, you know, whatever they could find to eat. This was in the 70s, late, late 70s, especially after the flood and the famine. The aftermaths of which and everything left, you know, left its impact on a lot of people. And that was most of the time when I, that was a time when I spent most of my time living in the villages, villages itself. Now, everybody has at least two cooked meals a day in their homes. You can see the difference. And the quality of what they're eating and the quantity of what they're eating has changed too. So I'm just giving some examples showing that there has been changes. Uh, women before in the economic, in the rural areas, the, they were involved in agriculture only in the post-harvest technology, that is within the homes. Um, since uh, mechanization and rice mills and even the thresher is now mechanized and it's been taken from home to home and you, you know, it's all commercialized now, women are now working on the fields. And I remember when I started working in the villages, people would think that if you walked over, you know, through the fields, the crops would all shrivel up and wither. That's not the case anymore now. Now women are working. Of course, women are getting less wages than men are. Men would get, uh, it was very meager wages in those days. Uh, Tentaka was an average wage, whereas now you can get about 400 to 500 taka. But for the women, it would be 300 to 350 taka for the 400 to 400 and 500 taka that the men would get. So though the wages may have increased, the, the, between the men and women, the kind of uh, disparity that existed then still exists now. And that continues despite the fact that uh, what Hamida has also spoken about and others would speak about, that women are now out doing every single kind of work possible. They're out in the markets, they're out um, doing small businesses, they're growing their own food, they're into all kinds of economic activities. But even then, they're uh, in the economy, in their homes, etc you can see that their, uh, the wages and the work that they do is not counted as being uh, the main economic earner. S since 72, there was a uh, law that uh, caste land, that is government-owned land, agriculture land, which is not, you know, that which is unused, would be uh, 
would be given to the landless peasants. It would be distributed amongst landless peasants, especially those who are criterias of those who are river eroded, etc. Women were not included then. Later on in 87, women did get included as spouses. So it would be in the name of the husband and wife. But when there was a divorce or when the man left, it would mean that he would say, you're getting it only as my wife. And so he would take her portion too. And she never had the agency to be able to say that that's in my name and I'll take control of this. Women who were single women, women headed households, by then this was, you know, all these new policy changes started coming in 87. So women headed households was accepted as there are women, but women headed households don't have a man. It was stated that women would get it if they only had an able-bodied son. Now, which is still despite all the, all the movements, all the pressures, all the petitions that have been given, this still continues to remain. So we can see that disparity and discrepancies remain quite strongly. In many cases where changes have been made in terms of inheritance, the inheritance laws still remain very archaic, no matter which religion you belong to. And that the governments are not willing to touch. I think Shirin would at some point, I hope, touch on the CEDAW and the reservations Bangladesh has on the CEDAW. But I, because I'm conscious about time, I don't know how much more time I have. Uh, four minutes. Oh, I have four minutes. All right. So... Uh, the one of the major things that women face now, I mean, before, I think the first thing that, like, like in 72 or right to, up to the whole of the 70s, anyone visitor visiting Bangladesh, the first thing that they would say was, we don't see any women visible on the streets publicly anywhere. Now, women are visible everywhere. But for those of us who did go out, and went on public transport, I think we were much more secure at that time. And now there are more women who are out in the workforce, as Hamida mentioned. Women, as I said, are also working as agriculture labor and all kinds of jobs, every single job that is possible and that is available, whether it's in the rural area, whether it's in the urban area. But the violence and harassment of women have increased a lot. The insecurities women face have become even more acute and much more uh, you know, pertinent now than it used to be uh, when we were working. It wasn't that there wasn't any um, human rights violations. There was always human rights violations. It wasn't that there was uh, no um, harassment of women, there was harassment of women. It wasn't that there was no violence, of course there was violence. It was not, no, not that there was no insecurities, yes there were insecurities, but the fact is now the kind of violence being used, the, in not just gang rape, but the kind of, it's just the intensity and the brutality I find has increased so much. And if with all the positive steps that we've been able to take so far in terms of women's empowerment, economic empowerment. If your basic you know, security is 
threatened. Your ability to walk, to work, to live, to survive, to have a house you can call your own, if all that is threatened, then this whole economic uh, security doesn't really mean much. So I think that is one of the major things that all the women's organizations and women's groups and everybody, and not just women's groups, because we're all talking about understanding how everybody has to get together. Women's organizations have also begun, begun to become much more sensitive and much more nuanced about the different kinds of sexualities that exist within the country and how there have been few, it's not being discussed much, but there have been few cases of people who have protested against what their family has assigned to them as their gender. So at least that's coming out. But for anyone who's going out of the you know, box, out of what is considered correct, there is the threat not from your family, right? From your society, right? On you, right? Also from the state. The security, the Digital Security Act, which is in, you know, in place, acts as a curb. So one of the main, to, to, your, to your ability to be able to speak and to ask for, ask questions, to ask for accountability. So democracy, which was one of the major principles, you know, pillars of uh, our the constitution and the reason for Bangladesh to be uh, created uh, to, for us all, for, for the whole liberation war to have happened. So that democratic space is now shrinking to such a level that there's hardly any democratic space left for anyone to speak. And a lot of us also do self-censorship for fear of the reprisals that we may be facing. So in this context, while we have many areas that, we are, that are positive, I think there are also areas that we need to look at very thoroughly and very scrutinized very strictly to see that, yes, are we actually in the path we are supposed to be going in? Do we as citizens of this country have agency? Do we have real citizenship or are we just citizens in name only? Do we have the right to be able to question, to demand answers, to have a say in what we want? to be able to do. So, and in this context, I'll just say there's a growing, there's a real growing trend of religious backwardness in trying to control where you are for women. And I'll just uh, say that, that often religion is used as a means of control for women, rather than religion being something that people believe in and feel a solace in in their own personal lives. So this, it's being used politically. And I'll just, I did raise a lot of issues, which doesn't mean that we have not had some very positive steps too, but I think it's been a mixture. 50 years of Bangladesh, we've had both uh, very positive steps and we've had areas that we are very concerned about. Thank you. Thank you, Kushi, for bringing out the positive, but also the lingering, persistent inequalities, disparities, and <laughs> the newer forms of setbacks. Naila, over to you. 
Okay, I, I think I, I'm very glad that the question asked us to distinguish between how gender relations may or may not have changed across different classes. And I think Hamida said at the very beginning that, uh, you know, uh, people from different classes, religions, ethnic groups, etc., have not experienced the last 50 years of Bangladesh in a uniform fashion. On the other hand, I think it is important to acknowledge, which the other speakers have done, that change has happened and that a great deal of it has been positive. Women from very affluent families, and they are still a small minority, have been the main beneficiaries of the steady growth in income inequalities that we have witnessed over the past decades. They are much more likely to be integrated into the global economy and into global um, patterns of consumption. But we have also seen changes lower down the income distribution. Uh, one of the most important, uh, and one that does not get, get much airtime in the literature of 50 years of Bangladesh, is what it has meant for women to control their own fertility, to put an end to the endless cycle of childbearing, to have to be reliant on methods that their husbands controlled, to look forward to a life expectancy that now resembles what the life expectancy of other women in countries at the same level of development is. We have also, and others have spoken of this, seen the expansion of economic opportunities uh, for women in the form of export garments, community expansion of services, uh, overseas migration, and of course, microfinance. I've always been struck by almost all the changes and interventions that have taken place in women's lives have been accompanied by major controversies, not just between those who are opposed to gender equality, but also those who support it. And that is whether we talk about family planning, whether we talk about export garment factories, whether we talk about microfinance. One reason, of course, is that these seldom come in the form of rights. They are generally backed by instrumental rationales, whether it is population control, child nutrition, foreign exchange earnings, or something else that those in power consider important. But as a friend of mine once said, it is not good to treat people as instruments but we must remember that instruments can fight back. We have seen women from poorer and lower middle-class families take advantage of these opportunities and use them to renegotiate the relationships that matter to them on terms that they consider to be more acceptable. Those who worry that this will break, lead to the breakdown of the family need not worry. What they will lead to, hopefully, is slightly more democratic families, and I believe that we are seeing that in Bangladesh. Uh, we may, you know, we may look a lot at the violence in the public domain, but my, the, the research that I do suggests that women have much greater voice within families than they had before. And of all these economic opportunities, our research tells us that it is microfinance that has reached the most women. Not only women in poor families, but the better off as well are taking advantage of it, so much so that while the controversies continue to range, microfinance has become a routine aspect of the lives of women and one of the main routes through which they are able to earn an income of their own. It may not see them become political actors, but it has seen them become economic actors within the boundaries of their home. What else has changed through a variety of routes, NGO discourses, access to media, public discourses, education, migration, is an expansion of horizons. Women no longer refer to themselves as frogs in a well, as they used to do <clears throat> when I did my PhD in uh, fieldwork in 1979. 
And even if they cannot change their own lives, they want to change the lives of their daughters. And some level of education that will allow their daughters some degree of independence in marriage is a key route. I don't want to dismiss the political changes that have taken place uh, over the last several decades. Whatever we may think of them, several decades of having women as prime ministers in this country has had an effect on the popular imagination. And I hear it in the voices of women in the village. We have seen greater opportunities to participate in local government. We have seen voting rights and we have seen encounters, if not active involvement with women's rights groups, human rights groups and social mobilization organizations of the kind that are represented on this panel. And all of these have had some impact on women's consciousness and their recognition of their own humanity, if not necessarily of their equal citizenship. There is far less female deference on display when we go to the villages of Bangladesh or to the slum areas of Bangladesh. But the blockages and the barriers remain. The speakers ahead of me have spoken of some of these. I want to, to focus on two extreme forms of influence that I think have been a part, have exacerbated the problem. On the one hand, an orthodox form of Islam imported from the Middle East that requires women and men to abandon, abandon the somewhat more tolerant form of Islam that prevailed in favor of a less tolerant and a more austere form of Islam that frowns on the singing and dancing that has been the essence of Bangladeshi culture. And on the other hand, the sexualization of women's bodies through social media, through Hollywood and Bollywood and the West, once again, antithetical to what we regarded as Bengali culture. If women remain confined to their homes in the way that Kuchi uh, mentioned, if their economic activities are curtailed to those that are considered socially respectable, it is because both these kinds of influence not only do little to challenge the male breadwinner ideologies, but they continue to regard women in the public domain as open to harassment and violence, seeing them either as wanted women or as impious Muslims. Public safety is something that any country should undertake. Any country that takes the rule of law seriously should seek to uphold. But we are yet to see that happen either in Bangladesh or in South Asia more generally. That's it. Thank you so much um, for bringing out <laughs> all of the, the hidden <laughs> contradictions within some of these um, areas of progress and the ongoing debates. Um, Shireen, over to you. I'm sorry, uh, there was an inter internet disruption, so I was gone for a while. Um, so I, I missed what uh, Hushi has said, and I think I missed most of what Naila has said. But anyway, from my vantage point, um, I think what I would like to start by talking about is, you know, despite all the gains and advancement, what seems to have persisted throughout these five decades is a continued prevalence of a culture of misogyny on the one hand and a growing culture of impunity on the other. And together these um, make for a particular kind of vulnerability that women and girls are, are um, um, you know, th that women and girls are particularly vulnerable to. And the culture of impunity particularly important because it, it indicates a situation where perpetrators 
who are connected in one way or the other to political power, be it at the local level or at the national level, seem to get away with all kinds of horrendous crimes. So this is a situation where women are, we are finding that, especially in this pandemic period actually, and before of course, um, we are finding that very um, brutalized forms of violence have surfaced and um, whether the reporting has increased or whether there's an actual increase in incidents, it's difficult to say right now, but there's certainly what has surfaced is very, very brutal forms of violence that women are being subjected to and, and also girls. Um, the other thing that has persisted is discrimination, both in the law and in social practice. And again, this, this is an important factor in undermining women's uh, achievements over the five decades. And um, the two together threaten to actually undo a lot of the development gains over the last five decades for women. Kushi has already mentioned that in terms of life expectancy, we have seen tremendous gains for both men and women. Um, the sex ratio has improved between uh, sex ratio between males and females have improved and there's greater literacy and also more and more women entering higher education. Now these are also actually creating new challenges for society and in particular for men that uh, women are entering uh, professions, diverse professions, and, and uh, in a way, challenging what, where, what was hitherto an exclusively male domains. So these are some of the things, some of the changes that we are seeing. And um, Hamidapa mentioned the FemGen, uh, which is the new alliance that we have formed and this is what gives me hope, is that young women and um, we have, uh, you know, young women are coming out and saying we are not going to put up with this. What, what, is, what, are, what are young women saying? They are saying that not only are they not willing to put up with it, but they are also prepared to go out and confront some of these situations. And what they are focusing is on working in, with schools, working with even younger people, and particularly on comprehensive sexuality education. And so there is a great shift from my generation of activists who had unwittingly maybe considered legal strategies as a way out and younger women are saying, no, we have to actually work on challenging the culture of gender-based violence. And, that, and the one way to do that is to actually work with young people. Um, I think I will, in the, on, this is the first round, so I'll just end here. Thank you very much. I, what I'm finding, which is, so important in all of your remarks is <laughs> this you know women have moved out of the private sphere into the public <laughs> and the violence and all of that is also moved out 
somewhat from the private to the public and that contradiction. Um, I'm also um, feeling that the gender-based violence is not only at the hands of the men in the family, but it's at the hands of men in the general public and by the state. So the gender-based violence is, has spread out. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased that we've talked a lot about the intersectionality of gender, class, ethnicity, community, because I do feel that's the future of, of feminist analysis and also of gender action, if you will. Um, and I'm intrigued by this shift that Shireen talked about, but Hamida had also foreshadowed, which is that the education curriculum and the culture being a, a focus for future action, not just changing laws, right? That you're changing the soft norms, if you will, not just the hard norms. Um, yeah. And the one thing I want, I'd like to hear your thoughts on all of that mix of things, but I'd also like to hear about um, collectives and collective action, because I've heard about collective action a bit, but how much are we helping women organize themselves around these around these issues? And I know that we are, but I'd like to hear more about that. So I'm just throwing out those issues, and if each of you would have a round um, of further reflections on that cluster. And maybe I'll start, I'll go in a different order. Maybe I'll start with Nyla this time. Okay. Um, I think the, the legal strategy was one strategy. It was not the only strategy ever. I think uh, what you were familiar with, Marty and Kushi was familiar with, was about grassroots mobilization was about trying to build up uh, awareness from the grassroots level through collective action, through association, in some cases organized around access to microfinance or around savings and so on. So the legal strategy has always been important. And one of the um, elements of the grassroots awareness was to educate people about their rights, what the constitution told them about their rights. What I am very troubled by is as the financial sustainability agenda of microfinance has overtaken development, uh, you know, uh, the agenda, that aspect of the microfinance organizations has disappeared. And, um, you know, you see organizations like ASHA that shifted from being quite active at the collective mobilization level to becoming very narrow and microfinance, financial sustainability driven agendas. So I think what was missing, and again, you know, attempts here and there, was how to change at the level of schools. You know, I think that is something that uh, we, there was attempts at adult education, but less, fewer attempts at looking at schools. So I think the collective action aspect of it is now having to be manifested uh, in other ways to what we had seen. And it is becoming more difficult for the reasons I think uh, perhaps it was Kushi talked about the closing down of space for democratic uh, you know, activism. So that part of it is I think difficult. The changes that I've talked about have been very much at the level of individuals. You know, the, that political awareness, 
that comes about through people being free to come together and to deliberate and to discuss, um, I think that that side of it has been shrinking. So I'm not that, you know, so my focus has been very much on, uh, and, and the others may disagree, but certainly the conversations I have with people in the countryside is that that level of domestic violence that we used to talk about does seem to be less. There are, you know, women who will say it's gone down, but the level of domestic violence in the public domain, on the buses and, you know, going to the market, all of that has, excess, has, has, has grown, has grown, and it has taken some of the frightening forms, I think, that the others talked about. Thank you. Kushi, do you want to pick up on that? You're on mute. Kushi, you're on uh, mute. Can I come a little later? All right. Hamida, can I call on you? Yeah. Uh, just taking uh, Naila's last point, whether domestic violence has gone down, that's very difficult to say, actually, because uh, earlier periods, there was not that much reporting, but women are now actually, uh, the press is reporting it and the numbers are quite... Um, I'm not you know, basing it uh, on people's reporting. I'm no, but also, I, I think it could be that women are now actually filing complaints, which would be, to me seem like a positive thing to do. But Bangladesh, Marty, is, I think, a very conflictual society, much more so, I think, than the time that Kushi was talking about it earlier where there was more cooperation. And during this uh, conflictuous society, which is very violent at times and leading to public violence, I think um, whenever there, it is violent, whenever society is violent, the first ones to go under are obviously women. And I think sex-based violence becomes much easier, particularly uh, in a culture, in a gang culture, which is uh, now seems quite uh, prominent in Bangladesh, a gang culture which is encouraged uh, by or perpetrators who are encouraged by the political parties because they have the impunity to escape whatever things happens. Um, I think one has to look much more closely at how women's groups are working together to some extent, more perhaps than they used to before. And these are to some, uh, some may be NGOs, some may be just voluntary groups, but I think they have taken on different kind of strategies, legal being one, because it brings things to the fore. And certainly changes in the culture is what we all want, but how do we bring it about? Because there are also people on the other side, I would say, the more conservative, orthodox, religious, whatever you want to call them, who are trying to impose their own culture. And it is also, you know, with, uh, and they're working together on the basis of various other uh, political failings that we seem to be seeing in Bangladesh today. So if there's greater authoritarianism, authoritarianism which prevents people from speaking out. And here I think um, I would like to mention that I think women have been quite active in speaking out, particularly on issues concerning their own freedom of speech and freedom of speech of other people, like recently the use of the DSA Act. I remember a long time ago, many, many years ago, when um, Taslima Nasreen, uh, had written a poetry 
there were lots of women's groups, actually, women's groups who called themselves also believing in fundamental human rights, who were opposed to what she said. Some of us worked actively in her defense, not because we supported what she said, but because we felt she had the right to say it. And I think many of us felt that this is one way of encouraging people to come out, no matter what they want to say, it's their business. But this is probably shrinking now, and one is looking behind one's shoulder, who's listening to me, shall I say it or not? So I think these are the things we have to look at, and I think we have to work actively towards also, uh, it's true that uh, legal strategies can't work by themselves, but on the other hand, laws are being enforced, are being forced down our throats, and we need to protest those. And we need to see that our laws are based on international standards. Today, everybody from the UN down, from the Human Rights Commission has talked about how the DSA should be abolished. I think we need to look at these factors. Thank you. Kushi? Yeah. So I'd just like to say that, um, you know, it's an interesting discussion that's taking place and this interesting, uh, you know, takes that we are taking from our own, our own experience, our own perception, our own, uh, uh, you know, our own contacts with people that we have. Uh, <clears throat> it's true. As women, as you were saying, as now women are more, moving more and more into the public domain, uh, the violence, public violence uh, against women has increased much more. Uh, domestic violence, in the sense, may have decreased because women who are now out in the public domain, working, earning, and having access to other organizations and people, are being able to speak out and feel, find that they may have a support group. I find that wherever women have found that they have a support group, they feel that they can speak out. It's, but it's in the public sphere where the impunity, the issue of impunity comes out, is where those who feel that they can get away with the kind of you know, extreme violence of the worst kind, I told, as I first said, I mean, I haven't seen the kind of brutality and the horrific kind of violence being uh, pushed on women. And young boys, boys too. And very often it's people who either have uh, the, uh, you know, the support of the religious communities or the support of the political party, or they have the finance or the money to be able to buy their uh, way through. And uh, I do see here a lot of people, women, young girls, saying that they want to fight back. They have the, they have the strength to, be, to want to fight back, but they don't know how long they could last without having a sort of support system. So at least I can see what the change I see in these 50 years is that women are more aware that just being beaten up every day of their lives is not something that is acceptable and that's being a woman means. Uh, that they would like to speak out more. A lot of women do speak out and go to court, yes, but also violence has also increased publicly in the public sphere much more. And it's also used politically, like in 71, the rape of women was used as a political tool. Even now, in the villages, those who are trying to, or in the uh, different areas, even Para and Mohallas, those who are trying to gain control in that area, 
these young thugs are using rape as a means of control uh, in that area to show how powerful they are and how much impunity they have. So that exists. But I think on the other hand, also, women are, uh, you know, the, the, there are laws and women are not, they, they're aware of the laws. I see across in the villages, because I still work in the villages. Most of my information comes from all the women that I work with in the villages. They know the number 999. And very often when they are being pushed, they may even, a lot of them do have phones. Take click photographs or the, just click 999. And, you know, that kind of, that I didn't see in the 70s when I was, I mean, people didn't have mobile phones in those days at all. But even then it was uh, something that I see now that people are much more aware of in saying that they can get a support group. They can get support groups of seeing that whether this can, uh, they can get help from somewhere. Uh, laws, the laws are there, but the laws are not implemented. So there are people who are trying to gain their own strength by trying to ensure, can we ask for accountability? Can we ensure that the laws come in our favor? So there's, you know, I think in 50 years, we've moved in a way of being passive, you know, recipients of what is being done to us as women, to someone who has a voice, but we have we are still not have, we don't have control. We don't have control and we are not sure. And this is not just women. Uh, it's for a lot of other more, uh, those who are less powerful, the more marginalized you are, less uh, control and voice you have. So I'll leave it at that. that. All right. And let Shireen come in. If Shireen, I'll let you come in and then we'll turn to some questions from the participants, the audience. Shireen. Thank you, Marty. Uh, you wanted to uh, know about collective action. Um, Naripakul initiated a national network of local level women's organizations, very, very local uh, women's clubs, women's associations, women's committees, etc. And we formed a network called Durbar, which consisted of 530 such organizations across the country. And that was the, our first experience in trying to create a kind of national voice, um, which is not based on just, you know, people in, in Dhaka. And um, one, the two things that the network chose uh, to focus on was that one was, again, violence against women, because that is what threatens everything they had gained by through education, through uh, income generation activities, through employment, etc. So violence was one of the issues. The other was political participation. I, I won't use the term empowerment, but, but political participation as a way of gaining some kind of social capital that women can then stand on in terms of confronting, um, confronting attacks, confronting um, various ways that women are undermined by, uh, by society. So Durbar Network actually had in its initial, I would say in its initial 10 years, quite a lot of uh, success in 
in in in in um, confronting issues locally but with the power of a national collective behind it and unfortunately the issue then that came up was resources because to maintain such a national network actually requires resources which these organizations on their own do not have so we saw a very good first 10 years and then a not so good second 10 years in the sense that uh, in the first 10 years we had donor support from um, uh, various agencies and when that ended we actually unfortunately we saw that this was not uh, working so um but Durban is still there. It's not as active as it could have been. But I think that that is one of the models in, uh, that we need to pursue, is bringing together local level women's groups and into larger uh, platforms. The other thing that I think is important to mention here is women in local government. Women being elected into seats in Union councils, Union Polishards, and Upazila Polishards. I think that the fact that women in these two levels are directly elected brought about a sea change initially. That you know this meant thousands and thousands of women across the country were sitting in local councils. Although there was a lot of issues about you know their terms of reference, whether they were allowed to function, whether they were allowed to exercise their authority or or whatever powers they were given but i think those were those teething problems were there but the fact is now that there are women who are in local councils in upazila and union level and i think that also has brought about a change both in perception as well as in behavior towards women in rural areas as well as in urban areas. So for me, I think those two are very important is that autonomous uh, platforms as well as local, locally elected bodies. Thank you. Um, let me just um, bring out a couple of th three questions that have come in through the um, chat. One is the issue of child marriage. And I've heard that with um, with COVID, <laughs> child marriage is actually increasing. So that issue as a, a sort of a reflection of cultural concerns. Um, and then there's the issue of which women in particular are left behind based on disability, based on being single, widowed, you know, which, which groups are particularly being left behind. And another is, um, Let's just see, there was a third one about, we've talked about the political participation, local and the symbolic of the women at the head. Um, but there was a question about more political involvement. So in your final round of remarks, if you could pick up on one of or other of those themes, the child marriage, the women left behind, the political um, participation. So I think I'll go in the order that you spoke at the beginning uh, for the final round, which would be then Hamida Kushi Naila Shireen. Thank you so much. Hamida, over to you. Yeah. 
<clears throat> well, on the issue of child marriage, I think the government has recently uh, enacted a law. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not very clear about this. But it seems to be, from what I read, a very retrogressive law because it allows the parents to decide whether uh, a couple can get married. I think the important thing is because if they're below the official age of marriage, but whether they should be left to the parents' decision, because from what I gather from people I met, from other women I met, is that in some cases, and could be quite a few cases, where young girls were being forced into relationships that they didn't want to engage in, but the parents were using this law as an excuse and saying that we think it's okay, so that was giving them a special uh, out. Um, on the issue of political involvement, I'm not really sure now what we mean by politics. If we mean by the politics in parliament, then that's a very, um, you know, uh, again, a very authoritarian system that we have, culture that we have right now. It's a one party dominated system. And even if there were more than one party, it's a particular class of people who get into parliament. And as we can see from the debates in parliament, with what has been going on outside, outside the parliament, none of those issues, particularly uh, issues relating to maybe women's violence or their opportunities at work or whatever else we're talking about outside, it doesn't feature very much in Parliament. I haven't noticed the women members picking up issues and, and even submitting. I don't know really if they've actually submitted any bills in Parliament. I think, and one of the reasons this is happening is because, um, well, you know, kinship is a very important factor in politics in Bangladesh. So when women are getting into uh, the parliament, or even in local government, I think many of them actually relate to the powers that be of one way or the other. And so when they get into parliament or when they get into local council, they are also reflecting uh, the party, the ideas and thoughts of the party that they belong to. And not only that, but also uh, within their own small circle who they, they represent are mainly people of the same set. So perhaps they're not speaking as feminists, but as members of some other thing. And so that if they're, and in, in uh, today's parliament, I mean, the vast majority belongs to the Awami Leagues and so are the women. And when any issues come up relating to women, I think they tend to look towards the party leadership or even the party speaker, the speaker who is also a party member and decide on those. So I'm not sure how much that is going to make a change to women's lives. But I think there is a different kind of politics outside that. I think there are women in the village communities and village women, whether they're members of NGOs or whatever the organization, they tend to come together. And it's an issue-based discussion that they engage in. I think that is probably going likely to take us somewhere. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kushi? Yeah. Uh, what was the second point that you had raised, Martin? Um, One was what, the child marriage the and the political. Different groups of women that are sort of left ah. behind, you know? Okay. I'll start with that first. Those, yeah. yeah. I'll start with that first. I think a disability is very much uh, women who are uh, uh, physically disabled or uh, even um, uh, intellectually in some ways mentally disabled uh, or whatever word one uses have been have borne the brunt uh, of being left behind also of being uh, violated the most so uh, that's an a, a group of people we have to think of the indigenous communities 
the religious minorities. Uh, you know, and absolutely, I would say is if you come from a class background that you don't have the money and you don't have the ability to have build up the kind of uh, rapport and systems and the support systems and get support from others, they would be the ones, women from those backgrounds would be the ones that are the most vulnerable. And they're the ones who's, uh, even if they do go to the police station, the police station will never take their cases seriously. Uh, the village will force them to compromise and not take things seriously. So uh, when we talk about development, uh, well, and you know, we are reaching a middle income or whatever uh, income country now, but the, uh, the gap, the divide between the rich and the poor has exacerbated also. It's a, it, you have uh, you know, a much wider range of uh, uh, disparity uh, amongst the poor and the rich. So amongst the poor, the women from those that I've mentioned are, uh, and of course those with different sexual orientation, which is commonly called, everyone is called the hijra, though there are many nuances between that. They're also, um, when Hamida mentioned the law, the law states that the parents can make the decision, but the court has to, uh, the magistrate has to give the permission. And uh, so on certain cases, et cetera, et cetera. And I know of one case which we are dealing with now, which our groups are dealing with now. Actually, uh, when I was talking of uh, having support systems, it's what Shireen was talking about is having, you know, uh, collective uh, support of different women's organizations, whether they're village women's organizations or different NGOs or different uh, women from different, you know, the lawyers or journalists or whatever, or even the just stand landless groups. We find that where our landless group, the women are very strong, they're taking part in all the local shalishos. So they're also being the people who are doing the, uh, who are, uh, uh, actually, the judges in the lo local village uh, informal, uh, I wouldn't like to call it a code, but that informal uh, system of, uh, uh, you know, mediation. So we have a lot of women who are now on those committees. We have women who are aware of what their roles are, who just go and observe and raise uh, issues and saying that we don't agree with what you're saying because this is against the law and this cannot be, you cannot make this kind of a decision. So yes, where there is, uh, where there is awareness and where there's a collective uh, organization and collective strength, there has been changes. So in such a case, there's a young girl who was raped by... We have to move uh, on. Yeah, just one minute. Up. I'll just say that somebody who's just been raped and she, her father wants her to marry the rapist who's a uh, madrasa imam. She got, went against her father, rang 999 and has moved out and has the courage to say that I know that I won't get any support, but I'll stay. I mean, that kind of courage that somebody in the village has is something that makes me think that things may be changing more than we know. Thank you. That is a powerful example. Naila? Things are changing much more than we know. And I think we need to acknowledge both what is changing in, in positive ways, as well as being aware of what, you know, what, what is getting exacerbated in negative ways. One 
politics. I think I was doing research around the time that the law changed around the way that people got elected into local government. And it went from being kind of nominated to being directly elected. And you could just see in front of your eyes the quality of the candidate when you had to be directly elected was so much better because she now had to go out and mobilize support. So, you know, the form of the way that politics operates in the formal domain, I think makes a huge difference, you know, whether it's direct election, whether you build a constituency or not. I think secondly, the issue of law comes up again and again, and I think it's very important. I think this business of having a law around child marriage and making it easier for parents to marry off daughters at a younger age is awful because there used to be, you know, the fact that the law forbade it was a huge defense that young girls had who didn't want to get married early. And the other thing I think is when I look at change, you know, we must, we, it will not happen uniformly. What happens is about the multiplication of possibilities. So I talked to two women, both of whose husbands had left them in a very bad situation. One said, oh, my life is a sea of ocean and I'm drowning, right? The other said, I'm going to take that bastard to court. That woman would never have been able to say that in the 70s. But now she is aware that there is a possibility for her to do something about this. So it's that multiplication of possibilities, which I think is positive change. But we have forces against it. And they're coming from many different directions. And a lot of the people on the panel have talked about the way that politics has become a very negative force in people's lives. And on who's left behind, I think I am very aware of how much my research has excluded indigenous groups. You know, I, I certainly look at uh, religious minorities and so on, but partly because of the geography, my own research has been, you know, guilty of kind of marginalizing the experiences and lives and trajectories of um, indigenous groups and of women within those groups. Thank you. Shireen? Yes. A um, couple of things. I think on the issue of child marriage, it's persistently been high. Bangladesh is, I think, the fourth highest uh, prevalence of child marriage in the world. And um, I think the amendment that Hamidapa mentioned or referred to was a kind of um, clever move by the government to change the age of, uh, you know, the age of um, what would be called child marriage here as a way of reducing the figures. But, it, you know, um, it was actually that that amendment did no good to anybody. <clears throat> but anyway, so child marriage, I think one reason why it persists is that parents worry a lot about so-called honor that resides in women's bodies. So the fact that there is generally uh, absence of rule of law does not help. So parents are worried about their girl walking to a school two miles away or coming back late in the afternoon or, you know. So one of the things is that it's not that they don't want their daughters to be educated, they do, but they worry about her loss of honor. And so it's better to get her married and then she is the responsibility of another family. And 
So this is one of the things that's driving the figures, child marriage figures continues to be high. The pandemic hasn't helped. Pandemic, it's reported that during the pandemic, child marriages have gone up. Um, so this is one, I think, one reason. Um, but I think until we actually attack this whole notion of this particular notion of honor residing in our bodies, um, this fear of loss of honor is going to continue to make parents want to control their control their daughters. And one way of doing that is get them married off. On the issue of there was a question about trade unions. Do we think that trade unions could be a positive? Um, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly how it is phrased, but anyway, uh, yes, I think I think in terms of um, gaining workers' rights and benefits, yes, trade unions can be an important route. However, I think we see now two kinds of scenarios. One where we have the traditional trade unions and one where we have independent, independent trade unions, independent women's trade unions. And I think in both cases, the fact that women are participating more and more in, in trade unions, is it positive thing? And um, but of course, on the whole, the the workers' rights are being attacked. I think Hamida is better place to talk about all this because she's working with trade unions directly and with the Sumit Nirapotta Forum, which is the workers' uh, safety forum. But I think. In, that whole sector, I, it would be good if women's organizations actually got more involved either through dialogue or through collaboration with trade unions. And this is something Naripoko has now taken up in the last couple of years, in particular in the ready-made garment sector, unions in the ready-made garment <coughs> sector. So we, we hope to see some positive out outcomes from this collaboration, from this uh, interaction. So that is definitely a, a, a positive um, area of work, I think. The other issue, I think, is on the whole, women feel very let down by our politicians. And this is where I think there is a lot of um, disappointment and anger at how politicians have repeatedly and consistently, um, you know, um, what is the word? Repeatedly and consistently kind of deprioritized or invisibilized <laughs> issues related to women's rights and women's benefits, and particularly issues related to equality. So we still have, 50 years later, we have discrimination in law, which no government, even governments which have, you know, sweeping majority, however, you know, whether it's through election the night before or whatever, but even with a sweeping majority, they have not been prepared to take on these kind of legal reforms, which would move at, remove formal discrimination at least. So anyway, that's it. Well, I'm, I'm, I just want to thank the four of you. This has been so rich a discussion and I think you know, what the future I hear going forward in terms of 
analysis and action is the intersectionality that we've talked about. Um, the cross-issue alliances that become important, you know, the women's organizations teaming up with the trade unions and other groups around um, around these really critical issues. And then the hope <laughs> in the next generation, the intergenerational alliances around gender-based violence. And in the next panel, we will hear from um, a younger generation feminist activist.